Let me point out, and I want to make this particularly clear. She made her first attempt at Coca Coca <laughs> I can't say it. Thank you. She went to the beach. It's the Clear as Mud podcast, where we look at the funny and not so funny sides of bad communication. Join us as we ask why is it so hard to get your message across? Take it away, Lawrence and Ray. While fake news and misinformation being spread across online platforms are relatively recent phenomena, the concept of clear as mud communication has been around since, well, since people have been communicating. Uh, we've talked in previous episodes about how organizations such as governments have manipulated language to their own ends, but one of the key perpetrators of muddy communication is the academic and scientific community. It could be argued that one of the key reasons that many people have rejected the rhetoric on climate change or have not listened to messages about mask wearing in the pandemic is that although there's a preponderance of evidence in terms of climate change that humans are killing the planet, and with some research indicating that 99% of relevant scientists acknowledge climate change is real and is a real problem, scientists, academics, governments, etc., have done a lousy job of explaining the impact of climate change in language that ordinary citizens can understand. Now, in my opinion, some of that blame lies not with today's scientists and academicians, but with those who developed academic publishing back in the 17th century, the framework of abstract introduction, methodology, results, discussion, limitations, conclusion, is, in theory, it's a useful way to describe a research study, but... I think that the stilted language used by most researchers can make it hard to understand what's actually going on in the study. Now, full disclosure about my own biases relating to this, as someone who studied journalism in undergraduate and worked in publishing for years before undertaking postgraduate study, I struggled greatly with academic writing styles. I remember my thesis supervisor telling me on more than one occasion, never use two words when 20 will do. And one of the key criticisms of my doctoral thesis from one of my examiners was, this is the shortest thesis I have ever read. Now, there's a reason that I never became a full-time academic and why I'm more comfortable doing things like developing podcasts, blogs, and newsletters rather than writing journal articles. Now today, we're speaking with someone who's had a career that's intersected with mine and then gone off in directions that have caused him to grapple with information about health and science in a quite different way, and in a way that I think can give us some insight into how researchers and writers can do a better job of helping people understand complex concepts. Stephen Pincock is a writer, editor, and publisher who has dedicated his career to making the complex clear. Stephen and I worked together late last century on a magazine aimed at life scientists, back when he was a fresh-faced, enthusiastic young journalist, and I, on the other hand, was already a cynical, jaded publisher. Uh, while initially he was explaining the latest research to an audience that had a scientific background, but in unrelated niche areas, Stephen then moved on to writing about health and science for both specialized audiences and ordinary people for organizations such as Reuters, The Scientist, Australian Doctor, The Australian Newspaper, and The Australian Broadcasting Corporation. And he's worked in Sydney, New York, and London. Eventually, he's moved to the Nature Publishing Group and is based in London at the moment. Now, the Nature Group is one of the few publishers that produces 
academic-style journals that circulate widely in the community rather than just within a narrow research community. And that's because they use accessible language that helps normal people understand science, technology, and health issues. Stephen, welcome. Thank you, Ray. Nice to be here. All right. Now, to start off with, help us fill in a few of the blanks to my description. What are you doing at the moment, and how did you get there? Yeah, you didn't uh, leave too many blanks in your introduction. <laughs> Thank you. you know, the story begins perhaps when I, was, when I was at university, where I actually did a science degree. And I got to the end of that science degree and thought, well, the ideas there were a hell of a lot more interesting than the, uh, the actual process of doing science. And so rather than struggling on to do a PhD, like uh, some people misguidedly did, <laughs> mm. I went straight into, into science journalism. And that's what I've been doing ever since. As you said, that started off in, in sort of trade publishing, where we were writing for scientists about science into all sorts of other areas. Along the way, I wrote a few books, did some work with scientific societies and governments trying to do exactly what you're talking about here. So one job was, for example, with the the Queensland government at the time of the, the when the floods were really a problem in, in Queensland, trying to explain how floods come about, what the government was trying to do to, to change them. Another interesting project was, was the Australian Academy of Science looking at vaccination uh, at a time when there was real concern about vaccine hesitancy uh, among the general population and trying to give them the facts about why vaccination was important. As you said, all of that sort of portfolio of things ended up with me about eight years ago moving to work for the Nature Publishing Group, which is now part of a, a bigger company called Springer Nature. And really my job there has been pretty varied, but you know, it has involved overseeing some of the journalism that's done at Nature, and we can talk about that in a minute. Scientific American Magazine is another one of our outlets that I work closely with, but also a part of our business with a separate editorial team whose job it is is to work with universities and companies to sort of tell their science stories more effectively to, to wider audiences. So it's, it's a, a wide range of sort of editorial and commercial stuff that I'm responsible for right now. So yeah, good topic for me to talk about this one. Right, great, good. And as you say, we'll delve a little bit deeper into exactly what is happening there at Nature at the, in a moment. But first, can you tell me with all that sort of uh, career arc that you've had, what has been your guiding philosophy in terms of uh, your writing and, and the things that you publish? I've never really articulated a philosophy, but I, there are a few things, I suppose, that I've kept in mind. The first is a fairly obvious one, at least to me, which is start by thinking about the audience, right? And so that, that will mean different ways of communicating depending on who you're trying to reach. You know, if I'm writing for a general audience, my, my philosophy, I guess, is to think about that audience member as, as perhaps the smartest non-scientist I know. So they don't need to be pandered to or patronized, but there should be no knowledge assumed about the details of the science. And so you're not, you're not writing, you're not dumbing it down, you're just explaining it to, you know, the uh, high court judge or, you know, your, uh, your very acute grandma or whoever it might be. So really think about what they need to know and what the implications are for them. One other thing that I do a lot when I'm trying to, when I'm writing for the general public, uh, and this, this might open a wider conversation, is I try and harness as many of the tricks of fiction as I can into my writing. You know, we uh, humans are storytellers. We like storytelling. And those elements of story to me include uh, characters, 
for a start. They include a sense of setting and time passing. So a sense of that the, the story is rooted in the physical world and, and a sense of tension and resolution, if you can get that. Now, that, you know, that's not going to work when you're trying to write a 150 word news brief. But try to keep in mind that those are the elements of a story that helps that help a reader stay engaged, that help a reader understand what's going on and keep in mind what you what you were saying at the start of the story by the time you get to the end of the story are really cool strategies and you'll see if you see if you watch you know some of the some of the best television news stories it's the same way it's the, it's the same you know i'm not the first person to come up with this radical idea but i think it's a really effective one for keeping people engaged mm. Okay. So with that in mind, what do you see are the strong points and the weak points of traditional journal publishing? Yeah. I mean, I, I don't have quite such a sense of PTSD about about scholarly writing as you do, Ray. <laughs> Fair enough. I'm a little more positive about it, <laughs> but I do think it's got I do think it's got limitations, right? So the yeah, the goal of a journal article, at least in the science, science areas that I'm interested in is to be concise and clear, easy to digest with a structure that's familiar so that you know where to look for certain kinds of information, where the, the focus is, is on providing enough information so that another scientist can evaluate the, the strengths or weaknesses of the research that's being done and potentially replicate it themselves. And also a real emphasis on citing the sources of, of information that you quote in a, in a piece of research, right? So that citation thing where you differentiate new information that you've brought to the table from the stuff that somebody else already found out and you're just quoting that. And so all of that is fantastic if you're a researcher who's familiar with a particular topic. If, you, if you're an expert on you know, transmembrane movement of, of uh, molecules within a cell and you read a paper on that, you don't need all that stuff explained to you. You just want to know what's new. How do they do it? Does that does that seem believable to me? And I think journals are fantastic at doing that. And that's really what their goal is. Now, there are some journals that that try to be multidisciplinary, that try to say, all right, well, you don't need to know the the the, the exact details of a you know quantum mechanics in order to be able to understand the significance of something. But even then, their audience is really not the general public, right? They'll take a they'll take a few more efforts to say why this is important and to explain some of the concepts uh, early on, but they're still going to follow m mostly that same pattern. Essentially, it's the goal is to provide clear, accurate, measurable information, no speculation. So that's, I guess, where the strengths are. The weaknesses are they use none of those tricks that I was talking about before <laughs> to try and engage the general public. In fact, they deliberately take all of that out. And so that's where I think there's a there's a second step that needs to come in to the scholarly communication world, which is translating that that research paper, that very dry, as you say, very jargony, very technically written paper into something that that's you know then can be can be understood by the general public. So I think there's a there's a second step that needs to happen. And I don't necessarily think it's the role of journals to do that, although some like Nature do, in fact, take that on as part of their mission. Mm. Okay. That actually leads me straight into my next question is, can you talk a little bit about the publishing style that you have at the Nature Group, how that is 
a bit different from traditional journal publishing and how it's the same, what ways it's the same, what ways it's different, and what you do to make complicated information more accessible, what you're doing arguably more successfully than what many other traditional journals do. Yeah, sure. Um, so the, the DNA of nature um, is communicating to the to the general audience, right? It was it was founded with the mission of communicating science to the everyday person, uh, and it was actually only later that it started to become a place where scientists talk to one another. So that's re- so that's carried on right through the past one hundred and fifty years, one hundred and fifty plus years where nature's always had as part of its makeup the idea that we've got to help the the everyday person understand science. So there are a few ways that that happens. You know, at the most technical end of things, um, we have sorts of article types that are designed to reflect on science as it is now, right? So this is this is more about still for talking to scientists, but in a very broad way. So some of those articles, there's a, a type of research paper called a review paper where a scientists are commissioned to sit down and sort of give a give an overview of where a particular field's at, right? So that's that's one part of what happens in nature. The, the second part is is where we ask individual scientists to reflect on individual pieces of research and write up something that explains why they think they're important or potentially flawed. So nature sort of in the science world, in the science publishing world, is is sort of famous for an article type called News and Views article, which is exactly that, where you go, where, you know, we say, we've got this piece of interesting research come through, we're going to publish it. Why don't we get a couple of other experts to do a a critique of that paper and why they think it's important? Uh, And so that helps, you know, talk about the significance or possibly identify some issues or things that need to be followed up. But then even beyond that, Nature has a, a large team of journalists working on in the, in the journal as part of the journal. And so their job, again, is to translate and to query and to question and to do, you know, proper journalism, not only on the stuff that's in nature itself, but also on the wider world of science and issues that are coming up. So that the, the nature journalist team will specifically address things where science and society intersect, where there's issues, you know, whether it's to do with science funding or the politics of science or whatever that might be, and really take an approach to try and be an outsider, like an insider-outsider view of, of the scientific world. And then I guess the last thing would be that, you know, we have a press office. And so what we try and do then is is also write press press releases that are designed to help news outlets accurately report on stuff that's that's been that's been published in our journals uh, in a way that gets that out into the into the wider community. So yeah, that's a long answer, but um, but yeah, that that's the, that's the sort of stuff that that's that nature does to try and make sure that research is amplified beyond and outside the research world. Just one more point on this. So as I said, we also have a separate sort of commercial editorial team whose job it is is to work with organizations and help them do the same job for their research. It might not be something that's published in, in our journals, but it's stuff that, that you know, they're proud of 
that they want to make sure has the greatest impact possible and uh, changes the world in ways that you know make society better and so we work with them to do that as well that's a big part of what we do okay i think you've actually already answered the next question i had whereas i was but maybe you can expand on it a little bit further i was, I was going to ask you know like what sort of responsibility humanity do you think that scientists and researchers have to communicate their ideas in a way that not only the narrow niche of fellow researchers understands but can also be understood by the general public i mean in a way we're talking about the philosophy of of the nature group i think but you know personally what sort of responsibility do you think this group has back in the as you said the dying days of the past, previous century when you and i were working together and by the way wasn't that a long time ago now <laughs> i think a lot of scientists felt that it was sort of a bit embarrassing to be trying to communicate to the general public like it was some sort of cheapening or or self-promoting activity that wasn't really their job and you know, that was a definitely a sense of that. Not not universal, but it was quite widespread. Mm. That people felt oh, like, you know, doing that sort of stuff's a bit tacky. Th- those days are long behind us, Ray, mm. to be honest with you. Um, you know, about a decade ago, the UK chief scientist, which was a guy called Mark Walport, said something along the lines of, you know, science isn't finished until it's communicated. Right. And so this is the, like, the chief scientist of, of a country like the UK, where a heck of a lot of research goes on, is sending a signal to the, the scientific community, which says, you know, your job includes communicating that science. And, you know, in, in the decades since then, governments and funding bodies, who are the ones who pay for scientists, science to be done in the most part, except for stuff that's done inside companies, have started to expect that their researchers, as part of the, 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 the science that they're funding, they're expecting their researchers to think about how they ensure that the, that the research they do is received by and understood by what they sort of call the end users of research, right? So that's about, you know, if you're, if you're doing... Um, a study on you know hearing problems in indigenous youth or you're doing a you're writing a paper on you know a new material that that might reduce energy requirements in in you know motor vehicles or if you're doing a piece of research on mitigating climate change you don't just write the paper but you've got to have a plan for how that's communicated after the paper's published in fact some so the european union has a actually a mandate a requirement that they do that and other governments are doing things like evaluating universities based on this their engagement with the end users of research so that might be industry or society and funding decisions are starting to be made on the basis of some of that so actually it's starting to be built into the the science world that communication more broadly and ensuring that your work has the best chance of of changing the world in a positive way is part of your plan before you even start to do the research. And so actually, I think that's a great move that will bear you know, a lot of fruit over the, over the next uh, few years. Mm. Okay, well, that sort of makes me think about then what are the best ways of getting that information out now that they 
have that kind of responsibility. This reminds me, we've talked about this previously uh, on a previous episode of the podcast, but are you familiar with the concept called the Kardashian Index? No. Now, no, now, Lawrence, you may be able to help me out with some of the details here, but it was a, it was a scientist who sat and worked out, like he did an algorithm, and he worked out a ratio of, of how many Twitter followers a scientist has versus how many papers that they've produced, or, oh, no, how many citations, I think, that they've had. And the more that, you know, you've got low number of citations but a high Twitter following, then that means you're just a show pony. But yeah. if you, but at the other end, if you've got lots of citations, and but your Twitter account has like you know two followers, then you're not serious enough about it. And that you know he's saying that where you need to be is somewhere in the middle, that you need to be producing real research, but you do also need to be communicating it. I mean, he really simplified it into just looking at Twitter. But where in you know like. Is social media a viable option, or what other things should scientists be doing? Yeah, look, I, you know, if you spend a, a bit of time in the right corners of Twitter, you'll see that Twitter is a is a huge platform for scientific communication right now. Actually, scientists communicate with one another on Twitter, and they and they communicate with wider audiences on that platform as well. So they, um, you know, it, it's become a place where if you want to know what the latest cool things are that are happening in, in science, social media is a good place to start looking, which is really interesting. You know, one of the one of the movements that's happened over over recent years is an attempt to start looking at ways you can measure the significance or importance of a piece of research in other ways. This the standard way that scientists had been had been measuring their sort of impact had been citations, right? So it had been the number of mm. times that other researchers had quoted for want of a sim better simple term the work of another another paper in their in their research and that's an important measure but it's only one of a lot of different measures of of relevance and so this idea of alt metrics alternative metrics has emerged in recent years and so social media might be one uh, new mentions in news stories might be another way to measure that the mentions of a piece of research in in like government policy documents or the policy documents of international organizations, this stuff they call the gray literature, which is sort of like, you know, the sort of the, this huge reams of, you know, sort of research that those organizations do. So there's actually now a movement to start tallying up all those things and say, well, okay, we can now see that this paper is getting a lot of in interest and impact in these different areas. Maybe you look at how many patents cite that piece of research as another way of ah. its its relevance to industry. So all those things are on the table now and are actively being looked at in the research community. It's like, oh, okay, these are ways that we can assess how much impact a piece of research is having out in the wide world. So yeah, social media is definitely uh, on the table there. Yeah. Okay. So if we accept the, your idea that we won't call it self-promotion, that actually talking about your concepts to the wider community is actually part of scientists and researchers and health communicators' jobs these days. What are we getting wrong, I guess, if you like, you know, 
as I mentioned earlier, you know, I feel like we've collectively we've dropped the ball with topics like climate change, social change, poverty, pollution, vaccines, you know, you mentioned earlier, or staying at home, mask wearing mandates, things related to the pandemic. What are the, the scientists and researchers getting wrong? And then the corollary to that is maybe what are other groups, you know, anti-vaxxers, for example, uh, and what are they doing well that maybe uh, science and health communicators could learn from? We need a we need a long time to talk about this topic, <laughs> <laughs> because you know just because I I you know would argue that it's part of the job of of, of many scientists to communicate their research more widely it doesn't mean that they're all good at it. Far from mm. it, right? People don't in the research world don't often don't always get training. There's a little bit of a, there's definitely been a movement over past you know years to start making media training communications training part of what scientists get taught uh, as part of their jobs but you know it's certainly very very few of them it's their full-time job right you know if you look at the way that science communicates within its own borders it's on the basis of the facts it's on the basis of show me the numbers how did they add up show me the data and that's what convinces one scientist about another scientist's work. And that's there's a temptation for scientists to try and use the same approach when they're talking to the general public to say, you know, these are the numbers. Just look at the numbers. You're not convinced. And people are not convinced because sort of what I was talking about at the start of this call, it's not uh, you know, humans generally speaking, are not number crunchers. What they are are storytellers, and they want to hear stories about themselves and the people that they care about and how science is going to impact them. So I think one of the journeys that the, the research community has come on over the you know, decades of trying to communicate about climate change and over you know, other, other major issues is you can't just rely on the facts in order to get the message across. Facts have got to be part of it, but that's not going to be that's not going to be effective for all of the general public. So this there's had there's been actually a, a lot of you won't be surprised to know, quite a big research <laughs> body of research on why communication about these things isn't working and the ways to try and change it. And so I'm not going to do a very good job of summarizing it now, but but that's one of the that's one of the issues is that um, you know, people don't come at evaluation of science as like robots crunching the numbers and saying, yes, okay, I understand that this is, you know, the two degrees of warming is going to be devastating for the earth based on, you know, all these factors. They come at it as people who are, who are part of groups and clans and, and allegiances and, and political parties and religious groups and whatever that have a different set of stories to tell. And if you're telling a story that clashes with those sets of beliefs or norms within that group, you're going to have to find a different way. And a fact is you can just throw facts at that all day long and they're just going to bounce off. So it's the, it's the starting with the audience, building a bridge to them, moving your communication much closer to where they are is, is what where people are trying to make a difference now. And the reality is that no matter how convincing you are, people have inbuilt 
frames of reference that are very hard to to shift sometimes. So it, it's it's not going to be a there's not there's not a perfect answer to to making those changes. But so where I think we've got on the other side of the equation where we've got groups who are very effective in telling stories contrary to what we see the science as being, they tend to come from within those frames of reference, those worldviews. And so they quickly gather a, a, a consensus among those people because they're, first of all, the story is being told by somebody that that group already believes in, already trusts, already can associate themselves with, can, can you know, relate to. And they tend, they tend to pitch the, the, the argument in terms of things that relate to other beliefs that those that those people have, whatever they are. So it's quite, you know, that's a that's not a very good answer, but it's it's complicated. And but the but you the, the bottom line is you can't rely on facts to to be convincing. Mm-hmm. Yep, yep, fair enough. All right. So who do you think is doing a good job of communicating complicated concepts with the world at large? It's actually a really hard question to answer. You know, I think, you know, in the media world, there's actually been a, a growing, there, there are a number of great places where I would turn if I was going to try and get some, some interesting information that I think resonates with, for, with the right audiences. I'll start with, a, with an odd one, right? So the, the, the Economist magazine ah. has, a, has fantastic science coverage that really speaks to its audience, but actually it is very, very rational, very, very pragmatic and, and very, very compelling. So I would, I would point you read your listeners to The Economist if they're interested in, mm. in science new or science, discussion of science, how it impacts policy, how it impacts, you know, people's everyday lives. Another thing that I think is a really great tool for science communication is visuals and visual, like, so that might be a, a data visualization or it might be an infographic or it might be a mm. you know a photo essay and i i love what the new york times does in that in that respect with their science coverage so they're doing fantastic uh, yeah of course nature i mean i you know talk about self-promotion but nature is nature and scientific american both doing excellent jobs can you point to any individuals who have taken it on themselves to communicate these sorts of concepts but they have found that balance of, you know, having integrity, but also making uh, inroads, I guess, with people rather than just being seen as a stuffy old scientist. You know, we we start with the you know the silverback gorilla of the of the of the field. David Attenborough <laughs> ah. has done an amazing. There you job, go. Right. I mean, what and and so you know, what do you think? Maybe rather than saying that's the that's a fairly obvious answer, but what is it that makes him so convincing, right? And he's never outside the frame, right? It's a personal appeal from him. It's based on him as somebody who spent his life in this area. He's He comes at this with equal amounts of rigor and compassion. He brings the lives of the animals that he's talking about to life uh, in amazing ways. Those, you know, so, you know, I, I think we all can learn a lot from David Attenborough. But that's sort of like saying, you know, who's the most Catholic person on the earth? Well, it's the Pope. But it's funny, when you were at the beginning, when you were talking about harnessing the tricks of fiction, you know, and time passing and rooted in the physical world, tension and resolution, as you were describing that, I actually thought, 
Oh yeah, like like a David Attenborough uh, documentary. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. Yeah. So, okay, that's a key example. But, yeah, it's good to think about what is it that he does. And as you say, it's the personal, the passionate uh, that he brings to it. Yeah. And, yeah. And as you say, the storytelling, right? The storytelling is a huge part of that now. You know, he, the, the narratives, I mean, I'm sure, you know, we all know it's not only David Attenborough. It's David Attenborough and the team of hundreds of people who work with him on these things. But they craft... Mm narratives small little narratives with drama in them larger scale narratives that are global in their scope um and that you know that really makes it compelling in a way that you know we all can we all should study yeah okay so what about specifically in relation to the pandemic has there been any standout communicators that you can think of whether that's a media outlet or an individual yeah so you know i've been as you said i've been living um, in the uk for the past couple of years you know spent a lot of time glued to my television like everybody else did during <laughs> the early lockdowns looking at government briefings and so on um and i actually was impressed on occasion by the ways that the the scientists who advised the, the uk government were able to do use visualizations to create understanding of what was going on. I admired their uh, willingness to step up and, and talk face to face as well. So mm. governments have generally not been that great in their response. They've struggled, right, in responding to the pandemic. Some have been better than others. Some have been had better moments than others. But, you know, I, I've been really admiring of the way that government scientists have been willing to do that. Uh, Anthony Fauci in the US is another uh, good example of that. So, mm. so they've done quite well. And hasn't it just been interesting how there's no need to create drama or or uh, conflict or, or or in fact you know narrative uh, in this because we're all we've all been living through it. And I I think one of the interesting mm. things that's come out of this for me the pandemic for me is you know the people on the street talking about our number people on the street talking about rna vaccines people on the street you know talking about concepts that would would not have you know they would not have had time to think about that or, or even been interested in thinking about that but because it's right in their lives there's actually been a general i think increase in scientific literacy in the population as a result of the pandemic maybe not you know maybe not massively but we all know a lot of stuff about epidemiology, about vaccine research, about vaccine variability. You know, we now talk about the variants of the coronavirus amongst ourselves and sort of understand how one variant can can overtake a population versus the other and why it does that. And we think about how many people we're likely to spread each, each uh, to, um, and we understand why that affects the public health system. I don't know. I think there's been, it's actually been a, a general uplift in a little bit of, of scientific literacy as a result of the pandemic. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. So now that we've building up the base a bit, uh, in terms of communication, what do you think needs to happen in the next 10 years so that we can, you know, stave off this dystopian future that's being predicted by so many scientists? So what do the scientists need to do to shift the needle of the uh, ordinary public so we change our behavior? I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. 
is an honest response. Yeah, that's right. I, I, you know, I think that um, one of the things that I see, if we're talking about climate change in particular, um, one of the things that I see happening is that scientists are, are increasingly willing to be clear about when they think a certain weather event or other phenomena are related to climate change in ways that they weren't before. You know, and that sort of attribution question is something that's been a real issue coming even even coming right out of the you know the the big thing that science does about with regard to climate change is this intergovernmental panel on climate change the ipcc which is a which produces these reports on a on a regular basis that that try and synthesize all of the research about the biology and, and physics of climate change and then tries to synthesize all of the all the knowledge we have about the impact on society and, and lay that out so that policymakers can decide what they, they what they think they need to do based on some of that input. And that those IPCC reports have very specific terminology that they use to describe um, likelihoods of things happening, right? And, and it's it's you know, they they are extremely careful about the way they talk about these likelihoods and that they're they're terminologies become increasingly firm and concerned over the years as we get up to the recent ones and so i think that's giving science communicators whether that's a, a you know a science reporter on the evening news or whether that's somebody in a newspaper or whatever um increasing or, or scientists who are brought on as experts in the media you know a, a framework to say look we you know this is you know what we're seeing now we our predictions are that that's going to become more frequent uh, or more severe as time goes on and give them a clear way of, of talking about growing risks yeah i wouldn't relay all of the responsibility for the energy system transformation that needs to happen on the it, you know at the foot of science right it's it, it's actually that's another thing to think that science can be the answer by itself is also a mistake, right? That's a component of of everything else. You know, we, you know, every time somebody says, you know, we should we should you know stop subsidising a particular industry because it's you know it's um, you know it's got high levels of of CO two emissions. Somebody else will say, but think about all those people who can't afford their electricity bill as a result of that, right? And so you know, science can't answer that question. <laughs> you know, that's that's a that's a whole of society conversation about what the priorities are, where the where the opportunities and risks are, but yeah, but I think science can contribute by being really clear about the the what we're seeing now and how that relates to what climate models tell us is likely to happen, uh, and keep engaging with with governments and and other parts of society and and realizing, as I said, that they're not the you can't just say scientists said this, therefore we should do it. Um, I don't think anybody really thinks that's the case, but it should be part of a dialogue or a, a you know a, a conversation about where we go next. So, finally, to uh, to wrap this up, now this podcast audience is largely made up of media and marketing professionals, and you of course have worked in the media for a long period of time. So, if we broaden it out a bit, what can this group of people do or what should they be doing to promote clearer communication of important ideas 
I, I think media and marketing professionals play a really important role in translating scientific concepts into the wider world. I think that you know the, the first obligation is not to exaggerate. Um, and I think that's you know there, there's a there's a real risk in in you know our, our jobs as you know uh, as journalists or as marketing professionals is to get as many people as possible to read the damn thing, watch the damn thing, whatever it is, right? Um, and the temptation there is to is to make the story as big as possible. And so I think that's obviously what we need to do, but but we need to do that within a framework that says you know avoid some pitfalls, especially in the health sector. There are a lot of pitfalls that need to be avoided when we're talking about scientific research. Be clear. I mean, this starts to get very technical, and maybe it's maybe it's the wrong the wrong part of a, an interview to do it. But you know, make sure that if you're if you're writing about a, a research study, that that you explain to your readers, you know, was that was that study done in humans? Was it done in mice? I don't want to hear about a study that cured mice. Of, of something and ha have it described as a cure. So for me, you know, it's about keep doing the great work. Be careful that you, that in your attempts to get eyeballs on your copy, that you that you don't fall into those pitfalls of over exaggeration or uh, simplification to a point where people can't evaluate the, the information that you're trying to tell them. Okay, great. Now I've been blathering on, Lawrence. Did you have any questions that came up along the way? Not really. I mean, just just a comment. I think Stephen, I think great. I mean, I mean, I think you need. There's a whole bunch of scientific knowledge here. Somebody has to be able to do a good job to translate it to the public as well as to policymakers. So I think um, big plus, big kudos to to your group and to you in in, in doing such a fabulous job for for science. Thanks, Lawrence. I mean, yeah, we all do our best, don't we? <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, that brings us to the end of another monster interview. They always end up going much longer than we thought, but it's because I think we're going in a really interesting direction. So, uh, Stephen Pincock, thank you uh, very much for your time. And we'll include some uh, show notes to Stephen's work and uh, links to Nature Group in general uh, for you to uh, have a look at and uh, peruse at your leisure. So thanks again. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. As always, we encourage you to subscribe to Clear as Mud on your favorite podcast app and leave us a review, as well as asking you to check out the show notes for this episode at clear-as-mud.org, where you'll find other examples of communication that is clear as mud. See you next time. This podcast is owned and created by Clear as Mud Productions. Continued listening to this podcast may result in uncontrollable laughter, eye rolling, and expanded consciousness. Please see your doctor if pain persists.